A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cameron Maitland and podcaster, writer, and film critic Justin DeClue. The wilds of Canada. Beavers, moose, the gophers tastefully taxidermied and displayed in adorable punny tableaus at the Dead Gopher Hole Museum in Torrington, Alberta. Yes, Canada is famous for cute and cuddly critters and friendly folk who wouldn't hurt a fly. Unless, of course, they're just trying to survive. Now, today we're looking at two movies about Canadian survival, one in the actual Canadian wilds and one in Vancouver's cutthroat urban jungle. Now, Justin, you revived and restored one of the movies today for your Gold Ninja video label. Now, what is it about these late 70s? Canadian films that should survive. People slag off the tax shelter era movies all the time and are just like, why are we bothering to talk about them at all? Well, what's interesting about the movie we're talking about today, Skip Tracer, is that it was actually completely independently funded. There were some other like tax ways that he went about it, but the director and writer of this film was not just trying to pump out something to throw into the system. It was something that he felt passionate about and that he wanted to just put out on the world stage. And while it did get a little bit of attention, I do think it's important because it just captures this look and feel and is one of the top in my personal opinion, entries into the hoserdom canon, where <laughs> it's mostly about a loser Canadian protagonist who maybe they'll have a little bit of victory, but it's mostly about them losing. Mm-hmm. Male dud, doofus with a dream, mm-hmm. very much a touch point for Canadian film. Going down the road is like, I think, the quintessential example of that, and everybody just followed that, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, even the director of the other film we're talking about today, he made a film mm-hmm. called The Rowdy Man, which is another hoser yeah. yes. classic. Yeah, I I also just think it's like when we talk about these movies, uh, there's so few Canadian movies. That's the thing where like, and especially so few Canadian movies pre like, ugh, 2005. I don't even know. Like there's uh, movies get lost so easily Mm -hmm. that like, why are we not preserving everything? Truly, there's like, uh, I got in like a debate. Yeah, with people at work because it's like even bad movies (laughs) we should be preserving all of these and broadcasting all of these because i mean just seeing vancouver in what one of these movies or seeing rural ontario they just don't exist and and you hear about stuff like i know chch produced a tv movie a week and i'm like where are those oh yeah what's going on well there's something Uh, fascinating about the idea of preserving all these movies because there was such a high barrier of entry that you're shooting on film that you have to get it processed that like the visions that you'll see whether you like them or not within today's context there is value there and it's the Henri Langlois kind of theory of you know preserve everything because you don't know what Mm. will have value I also really recommend people go back and listen to our our episode of Cannibal Girls uh, because that's something where they really hustled to not only to get the money for that, um, but also uh, the importance of the Cannes marketplace and the international market for Canadian film and how much of Canadian film was getting bought up on the international market for international distribution. And even though there's no distribution in Canada or in the United States, there's a ton of distribution throughout Europe. Canadian films played extremely well in Europe, uh, especially the horror and the genre films. So there's DVD versions of a lot of it over there and a VHS versions of a lot of it over there that just does not exist here, that we just don't have versions of it. I think it comes down at the end of the day is that like people in Canada don't think these movies have value. And because like they don't think they have value, they don't want to preserve them or even watch them. That a lot of the classics like going down the road, one of the reasons that it is a classic is because it got U.S. attention. And then people in Canada are like, oh, wait, wait, this has value. Okay, no, this is good. Let's, (laughs) Let's canonize it as a classic. 
Well, when you watch kind of the gaps of how the Canadian film industry worked is you have your golden age of the tax shelter where we started to get like, I mean, even looking at something like Atlantic City, right? Mm -hmm. That got an Oscar nod. Um, So you're seeing things that have that sort of American attention, as you mentioned. And then it all sort of goes away post-tax shelter. We very much become the joke or like our stuff is really weird or it's genre films that was just relegated to like, you know, bargain bins, um, lots of sequels, uh, that kind of thing. And then the indie renaissance comes back in like late 80s, early 90s that really starts with I've Heard the Mermaid Singing. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, a lot of our films are tied to queer history because I've Heard the Mermaid Singing, a fantastic queer film, Patricia Rosema. Can't recommend it enough. Can't wait to get to that movie. And then that's when the big wave comes in with people like Bruce McDonald, Don McKellar. Uh, that's when that whole wave comes through. And then that went away once again, once all the funding sort of disappeared. Uh, and I think what the last one would have... The last Canadian film? The last, yeah. Yeah, the last Canadian yeah. film, exactly. Lilies, that's the one I'm thinking of. That is kind of considered the last of the golden age in 1996. And then we started to get another little bit of a resurgence in like the mid-2000s, but it's never really gotten back to what it used to be in that golden age. When you're talking about preserving these movies, like even that uh, 90s kind of Toronto boom, the the Montreal Danny Archon boom, those yeah. movies, find those movies on DVD. <laughs> like, I dare you. They're, oh, they're already even gone, Even the man. early Bruce McDonald movies. Yeah. Like the ones that and they're tough to get. Yeah. I did an interview with Bruce McDonald where I asked him because I wanted to find a copy, a legitimate copy of uh, Dance Me Outside. And he's like, oh, yeah, I've been meaning to put that together. I should yeah. get it on that sometime. Uh, we, so part of that's just Bruce. <laughs> I know, like, I made a little thing, like, a little thing for Hollywood Suite about, like, why is Hardcore Logo important? And uh, oh, the, cine- the cinematographer said he, like, brought that to the Criterion Collection and was like, I beg of you, one Canadian <laughs> film. This is a Canadian What's film. What's wild is important. that uh, there's a couple Company, Canadian International Pictures, who are putting out Canadian mm. films. And I've heard tons of people are like, I love it so much. All these movies I've never heard of. It's like the audience is out there, but these companies yeah. are like, are they? Are they? Yeah. Do they really care about us? Blech. It's funny, though, because we just talked about the film Outrageous, and one of the best parts of the film Outrageous is the amount that they are taking shots at the Canadian film and entertainment Mm. industry. There's a moment where one of her buddies opens up a uh, a magazine, and it's like, let's see what's going on in entertainment in Toronto. Oh, it's Lucian so-and-so and and his accordion playing at the Sheraton Centre. Maybe he'll get sick. The shots at Anne Murray, they're great. (laughs) Already the 70s, they're like, oh, no, we don't do it for money. We do it for love. (laughs) And they make fun of the fact that he has to go be a drag queen in New York before anyone will pay him to be a drag queen <laughs> in Canada, which is, <laughs> which, yeah, I don't know. It's it's crazy. And that, that Canadian uh, Pictures brand is very fascinating, too, because, again, people are like, well, we don't need to put together something with bells and whistles. But at the same time, they are doing it and they're proving that these movies that have sometimes been free on the NFB website, like any Canadian can access them. Mm-hmm. Uh, people want to buy them when there's bells and whistles. It's much easier to consume themselves with like context and uh, absolutely and stuff. Oh, I must be the single biggest driver of people to go watch Devil at Your Heels. At the sure. NFB, that seems that like that's got to be. Oh, it is. It's on their slate. It was announced a long time oh, good, ago when good, they first good. announced it. So a oh. classic. It's the greatest. All right, well, let's get into another movie that should be a classic, but unfortunately, not a lot of people have heard of it. You'd think that the people who'd be safest in the woods would be a group of doctors, surgeons no less. But of course, you would be wrong. Now, I remember watching The Blair Witch and thinking, 
those woods ain't got nothing in Canadian wilderness. And you can see between the sparse trees, get them lost in the conifers, that is scary. And it is. As gorgeous as the sweeping scenery is of the vast forests, it also drives home just how alone and totally screwed our heroes are as they try to escape an unseen enemy, hunting them down one by one. Anyone seen Yellow Jackets? It's got that same kind of vibe. Uh, Cam, did you find yourself lost in this one? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this movie, I can't remember when I first saw it. I wonder if it, we used to have a Canadian movie podcast and it might have been there. I uh, think so. But uh, yeah, a very strange movie, a, a tonally odd movie. It is like the, the story of these doctors who are doing sort of the deliverance thing. It's one of these ones where it's like guys who do a manly quest once a year and, you know, they're rotating who chooses. And they choose to go seemingly fishing, I guess, in in the deep, deep wilderness where they have to, like, take a plane in. Um, and then it's it's the era of, like, it's not quite slasher uh, because that hasn't quite been, like, codified. So they are just being, like, screwed with <laughs> by a deadly stranger. Uh, and you're slowly realizing uh, there's some connection, maybe. Uh, a lot, like a lot of medical stuff is going on, but also the whole movie is like a drama about uh, medical ethics and uh, <laughs> male friendship and like you know being macho and heroic. Uh, but yeah, th through it all, they're being kind of picked off by an unseen killer. It's a, it's a strange one. Which again, lots of queer context. You have a character here sure. who is openly gay, and uh, it's never really mentioned again, with the exception of that he just happens to be openly gay. Yeah. When you write, read the contemporary reviews of this, and even some people in modern things are like, oh, it's a deliverance knockoff. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think it is. I think maybe they're just, aside from the fact it's a bunch of guys in the wilderness, what do you think, Justin? I do think it uh, was definitely sold on the deliverance-ness yeah. of it because it is kind of tackling the idea of, you know, ethics in the medical field, what it means to be like strong or present and decisions that were made in the past kind of bubble up to the surface throughout creating tension and anger. I love mm. this movie because it's a death march movie and this is yeah. a genre yeah. people don't usually talk about very often. This film gets <laughs> sold a lot as a slasher, which I think will be a little bit yeah. disappointing to people yes. going in expecting like someone jumping out of the woods and murdering them. Instead, the it's just The alternate like, title for it is The Creeper, which is very much a slasher title. Yeah, yeah. it's mostly them kind of like just dealing with nature and being screwed <laughs> yeah. over here or there by this unseen killer until like the final moments of the movie. And that is really fun, especially when it looks like it does in the 70s. This kind of like grit and even the best available print is kind of red as if it was like yeah. the best thing that they could save. And I think that's all great textual qualities. And I, it's interesting that like you mentioned that it's not very popular. I vividly remember in the 2000s, there was this like rituals is coming. Rituals is coming really? back on DVD because a company <sighs> right, called okay. Code Red DVD was supposed to put it out, which is a um, uh, I won't get into that. But uh, like it was on the cover <laughs> of Room Morgue. There were screenings <laughs> and then it kind of fell through the cracks again. It's like no one can mm. hold on to rituals until like now it's available on streaming platforms. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think you're right, too. It is. Like, to sell it as a slasher is, is way... Like, you definitely need to put this in the realm of the weird proto-slasher because it is mostly a drama. They are mostly killed by, like... A Home Alone style trap, mm -hmm. making them screw up and die. I <laughs> like mean, the they, killer. How yeah. many bear traps did he put in the water <laughs> to like get them yeah. in that yeah. situation? Oh, there yeah. might be thousands of them. 
I mean, to be fair, though, that is effective. There's very, oh, very few things sequence. that I see when it, when sure. it clips on. It's like, oh, no, no, no. But also, like, Thank certainly you. he couldn't have thought that throwing bees at them would kill one of them. <laughs> <laughs> All he does is toss a beehive at him. I hope there's, uh, yeah. like, a Tucker versus Dale, like, backstory to the killer where he's oh, like, yeah. I'm just trying to get some food. Yeah. And he's like, "Try beware of these bees. Or there's a bear yeah. over there. I'll throw some yeah. bees at them to make sure that they don't get hurt. <laughs> He's a, he's just a severely disabled man trying to help yeah. them. He's trying to get home and they're like shooting a shotgun yeah. at him. He's yeah. like, oh, what are you doing? It does have that ambiguity at the end. Spoiler alert, this is um, two vets who are, uh, it seems like they had been screwed over at some point by yes. doctors mm-hmm. and that's where yeah. the animosity had come in and then that's why he was trying to get revenge. But then there's a, the rituals comes from a ritualistic aspect where he keeps leaving like medals on them and dog mm-hmm. tags on the dead bodies and things X-rays, like that. So, yeah. But I also love that it does doesn't explain anything. It's just like, oh, here's here's a bunch of like stuff. Like, you're kind of left. Yeah, with that's this the best. I was worried I like. that they'd be like, I was the patient you never cured, mm. and I was like, this is very, co-. but it never goes there. No, like it's no. all ambiguous. Even, I like that they even explicitly like Hal Holbrook like puts together enough of the mystery mm-hmm. that he's like, this isn't even about us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is just somebody taking revenge on doctors <laughs> and we just happen to accidentally fall into their, you know, redneck trap. I like the imagine yeah. the killers like following campers and he's like, oh no, uh, they're teachers. I want doctors, doctors. <laughs> yeah. Like, for like the perfect victim. Yeah, it's very weird. And it's also like that they, they just luckily do a weird chant about being doctors that's pretty loud. What are the chances? Uh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's it's a strange movie, but you would think that all of this wouldn't work. But because it's like character actors and Hal Holbrook, mm-hmm. uh, it's all very serious. And every death, you know, the this goofiest, uh, like, paper mache uh, cut off head suddenly you're like oh this is depressing because yeah. they treat Honestly, it so real the locations for me is what really sell this the fact that they are like genuinely in the middle of deep Sudbury they are surrounded by trees they're in the water they're like and you feel it's one of those those shoots where you feel the misery the actors are going through just like covered in flies um, and I think that really adds to the authenticity and you're kind of in there with them in the mire and especially if you are Canadian you know what that kind of what that would be like ah, in the middle of Black summer. flies everywhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ugh, ugh, awful. No, thank you. Not for me. I will stay inside with my air conditioning. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is a thing you think about. And it's very funny. Like I looked up a few, uh, interviews with Hal Holbrook and he, he likes the movie, which is interesting. Cause it's like, this is a time in his career where he was doing bigger stuff. Yeah. So Mark to, like, Twain st- all the time. It's all <laughs> Hal Holbrook. Well, people don't know Hal Holbrook basically spent a career touring as yeah. Mark Twain. He'd Someone had to pass the mantle to Val Kilmer. That's yeah, just how it yeah. just goes. Do you think there was place. like a ceremony where Halbrook like gave like I, <laughs> he I, passed I, the mustache? I, I weirdly <laughs> think there was some sort of like connection where he like did not. Uh, I don't know. But this is like the same year where he's in like Julia, which was a big Oscar movie. So it's like it, it's interesting. But he still talks about like when they were filming in the water. They filmed for five days in the water, oh. and it's like how miserable must this shoot have been? Because I've been if you want to be shooting in woods that looks like woods all around you you got to go pretty deep in the woods unfortunately yeah. you are far from the road so that's like you're cutting off toilets you're cutting off and god knows in canada in the 70s it's in like, a low budget yeah, production yeah. yeah so but he he liked it and he i think that there was there was something to the fact that they were all kind of like that this is a little harder but it's that's fun you mm-hmm. know i don't know 
There's a fantastic quote uh, from a McLean's article in 76, which is covering this film, where uh, they're talking about how hard it was to make this film. He says, uh, they're talking about Lawrence Dane. His blood-streaked face is twisted in agony as he prepares for his big death scene. The agony is not entirely feigned. The special body harness he wears cuts deeply into his flesh. How does it feel, lad? inquires actor Hal Holbrook. Well, Dane replies wearily, it ain't Peter Pan. <laughs> Just like. But also, we should point out that Lawrence Dane executive produced this film. He was really, he really is someone who was instrumental in, he was genuinely trying to get Canadian film going more. He came up as an actor, um, he is Canadian, but he came up as an actor doing a lot of TV in the States. He was on Bonanza. He was on a lot of, like, he's got that rugged sort of look. So he's mm. someone who a lot of people would have recognized from their televisions. And then he came back to Canada and was really trying to, like, push being a movie star. He, of course, uh, wrote and directed uh, our favorite f- film here at uh, Urine Film Podcast, which is Heavenly Bodies. Love we love so Heavenly good. Bodies. Yeah. <laughs> After he finished making that movie, he just ascended to heaven. I've done everything I need to do. Another movie that refuses to be released on Blu-ray, but I feel there's Uh, issues with that one. because It's got to be a money rights thing. There are broadcasting rights, so somebody owns it. If if anyone wants me to get in touch, we we are allowed to broadcast that one. But but it's got to be a music rights thing with that one. I mean, I know there's a vinyl version I feel there's like a million Blu-ray companies that want to like kind of get their mitts on that, and they could be the one Mm. who introduce it as a cult film, because everyone who sees loves (laughs) Heavenly Bodies. The Oh, for sure. Competition movie, kind of. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Question mark. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's and it's like delightfully Canadian in a way that I think an American could consume and mm-hmm. be like, ha ha ha. They eat pierogies, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, that kind of stuff. I don't know. Just watching Cynthia Dale dance is all you really need. She really, she's just so peppy. I love it. Yeah. All right, let's get back to the Deep Woods, guys. Um, so, <laughs> so uh, this was his first collaboration with Harold Greenberg. Do either of you want to get into Harold Greenberg? Sure, I, I can a bit. I, I like uh, dug in Harold Greenberg is a very fascinating person because to a modern person you are probably most familiar with his name through the Harold Greenberg Fund which is essentially like Canada's uh, I don't know, there's no American equivalent uh, we have a uh, a financial reward for like great scripts and in an attempt to his thought was essentially like there's no incentive to produce a good script so I will create this uh, foundation to uh, help financially aid good scripts now on and the weirdly, other hand everyone that wins is similar to Porky's the film that Harold yes. Greenberg <laughs> produced yeah I was gonna say on the other hand uh, I would say that his uh, his producing credits are very much like exploitation movies but you're like you know what for an exploitation movie that was pretty good yeah the it's like, uh, apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz <laughs> yeah God, I, mean, I, I love the apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz sure. don't go after that you do love that one but like to me I really do like Little Girl Who Lived Down the Lane mm-hmm. yeah. I think City on Fire is we a very fun really like exploitation Death Ship. Death Ship yeah was we did really Death surprising. Ship. but yeah Porky's is his big uh, uh, money maker I've heard good things I haven't yet seen the heist film The Hot Touch but I know that that got restored uh, and is out there but yeah he it's weird because he is a man of he undoubtedly uh, made the film industry exist he apparently negotiated nafta to include like allowances for canadian film that's crazy uh, yeah so he's like I, but that's also the canadian film industry uh like i i was just looking up a few people and they're all 
maniacs, basically, who started <laughs> it. Yeah, and I think that essentially Harold Greenberg managed to build up stuff by being wise about what would make money, personally, and then funding that towards... He eventually had Astral Media, which eventually like becomes E1. He also started uh, First Choice, the channel, which eventually, I think that one maybe either became Super Channel or Crave, I can't remember which, to modern people. But yeah, he's and he was the guy who really had the rights to most of these movies. And unfortunately, I think since his death, that's when it gets bought up by E1, which gets bought up by Hasbro, which gets bought up by like... Which is murky market. Is that yeah. not the Can we release the film? No. Yeah, yeah. Please? Just, you're not doing anything with it. Eh, no. We'd have to get up. Uh, nah, we use that 35 millimeter reel to prop open the door. What are you it's, doing? Uh, I do yeah. think, though, that like Harold Greenberg is one of those guys in the 70s that he made all those exploitation films and then he didn't move to classier stuff, but he wanted to do classier stuff. While mm. that opening wave we talked about in the 90s, they never cut their teeth in like kind of exploitation before moving. No. There's no like Adam Agoyan like cannibal movie that he made before he made the movies <laughs> yeah. that he wanted to make. Yeah. I mean, I guess his early stuff is kind of horny, maybe, mm-hmm. in a way that was a little... But it's it's hard to imagine I mean, he, somebody... Uh, Harold Greenberg has the gamut. He also produced Being Different, which... Uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's maybe not the classy no, version of uh, not. exploitation movies. But yeah, I also looked up, uh, just because to uh, like get back into... Uh, rituals, I was very interested in the director, Peter Carter, and he uh, worked under uh, Budge Crawley, who was kind of the other mm. guy on the other side. Uh, Becky, I know you're very all, you always want to find his weird movie Amanita Pestilence, I've which seen is it. the first yep. Oh, wow, really? yeah, It's at the uh, Library and Archives of Canada, so I uh, <gasps> just booked it, uh. went and watched a like 30-year-old VHS of it. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. Oh. Uh, and, which is, ladies and gentlemen, the only way you can see a lot of Canadian yeah. films. And I do yeah, know exactly. is out there that the Library and Archives of Canada did. So oh. Wow. Uh, anyway, they, but it's like that guy is even more of a maniac where every movie he lost, like, he basically just worked himself into debt oblivion. Yeah, but at the Bunch same time. Yeah, had, like, one or a few successes of, like, the short mm. kind of, like, wild documentary movies that he made, and then each yeah. further one, he just dug himself deeper and deeper into a hole. There's a really good book about him. Oh, yeah. Actually, I think the documentary I saw is the book, like, mm-hmm. narrated, you yeah. know? Uh, but, yeah, the, the interesting thing is he his protege was the Peter Carter, who directed Rituals, and, and Peter Carter was kind of big, and, and you can kind of see how he took those lessons and turned them into... You know, like a high point, uh, a big movie. We talked about highballing on this I podcast, mean, right? High point is so. uh, technically a tall movie because it has to do <laughs> yes. with the Sea and Tower. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Honestly, it's that's something I bring up all the time. Is that if you have not seen High Point, it is worth it specifically to watch Dar Robinson jump off the CN Tower, which he sure. did twice. He d- did it once with a wire, and he did it once as a free fall with a parachute, which is absolutely insane. He's actually my desktop right now. I have a picture wow. of him from the from the library of him dangling on a wire over top of Toronto. From the and CN we liked High Ballin too. And it's interesting because both of those movies, you're like those are stunt movies and rituals. I mean, I guess again, being in the water for five days is. A bit of a stunt, but... When you talk about, like, directors from this era, or any Canadian era, I think, like, the saddest path you can see them take is maybe they'll work start in television, or maybe they'll just start with, like, a big indie film, like, uh, or, like... I guess, statement film, like The Rowdy Man, which Peter Carter directed, which is like, you know, really passionate, a man who refuses to take responsibility. It stars uh, Gordon Pinsent. And after that, 
you know, Peter Carter looks around the landscape and goes, will anybody give me jobs to make more movies like this? And mm-hmm. Canada goes, no, go to television, <laughs> direct the Swiss Family Robinson, Dr. Yeah. Simon yeah. Locke. And then, you know, he'll fight through. And I think Rituals kind of like restarted his career a little bit yeah. in the exploitation realm because that's when Highball and Follows and Klondike Fever. And it's worth saying that uh, he he actually, I think, was quite on the up because I think High Point got a pretty big American release, mm-hmm. uh, but mm-hmm. it was actually released posthumously because he died of a heart attack at 49. Uh, it was quite tragic. So yeah, it's uh, it's like an unfortunate thing because it did, you're, I think you're right, Justin, that he was like, he was really climbing the ladder in both prestige and like a known financial commodity. Um, yeah, and like, like yeah, I, I don't know. You can check out most of these movies. I haven't seen uh, Klondike Fever, for instance, but maybe it's good. I don't know. <laughs> that fun. Highballing is well worth your time. Highballing yeah, high is ballin's a lot, a lot of, fun. of fun. There's one called The Intruder Within that looks good. It looks like a weird alien movie. Come on. Ugh, I mean, like Klondike Fever is part of this like baffling wave of like Jack London dog in the <laughs> yes. snow adaptations. Italy made like 30 of them. Some of them directed really? by Lucio Fulci. Yeah, it was very <laughs> popular. It's like a weird subgenre that's been forgotten. Wow, huh. and and probably should remain. We don't have to love dogs running around in the snow. Yeah, I mean, I guess. <laughs> now, there's two different versions of this film. The one that actually came out and is now on all the streaming platforms and stuff is the one that actually makes sense. The other one apparently cuts out all of the veteran stuff, and you just mm. see, um, you just see the traps and stuff. So there's even more ambiguity. It doesn't really make sense. It also really leans into it being more of a, spl- a slasher. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the one that was reviewed by Siskel and Ebert. And it was one of their dog of the weeks, wow. but. Had they seen the original cut of this, do you think they would have been kinder to it? No. They didn't like no. they <laughs> didn't like these kind of horror films. Yeah. They don't like violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say it's too violent. Mm-hmm. Uh, Not enough yeah. uh, pretty ladies for them. They love that stuff, especially Roger. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No ladies at all. Barely a, barely a bosom in the bunch. <laughs> there, isn't, there isn't any women in this, I don't no. think, I think that at there's all. some nudie pictures in the veterans' cabin, Oh, maybe. okay. Well, I'm glad you clocked that. Thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the version. Uh, the 89-minute version, as you mentioned, was called The Creeper. I like the French title, Il était cinq. Uh, they were five, <laughs> which is like, wait, were there five mm. people? Were they five years old? You don't know when you pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting, though, how many, um, it isn't a slasher, but how many slasher tropes it's using before they were slasher tropes. Yeah. Like you have the first person point of view of the killer, which uh, we're still a few years away from Friday mm-hmm. the 13th. They use it a bit in Black Christmas. Yeah. Um, it's before Halloween. Like it's, it is interesting when you watch it now, you'd be like, oh yeah, it's a proto slasher. But it's just kind of got a whole bunch of tropes that weren't tropes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a movie we couldn't dig into much because it was a little uh, tough to get distribution and to talk about on a year in film was Torso, which I Ooh. think is the what people tend to point to as the point of view in the woods. Uh, but Emily and I, a uh, friend of the podcast, <laughs> we're digging into like, well, yeah, what like right now, what can we say about rituals? Like, where is rituals in the proto slasher? And the it, the other thing is interesting because it's like there was this big boom of like exploitation. Mm. Mm. There's another slashery one called Whiskey Mountain <laughs> this year <laughs> that seems very uh, similar. So it's yeah, it's it's interesting because it does hit on all these tropes and, and is very Friday the Thirteenth the before Friday the Thirteenth, but it yeah. does kind of feel like this natural evolution towards that, I guess, towards w- what if instead of old men, it was sexy teens? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd rather watch the old men. I'm not going to lie. Now, Justin, you said this was based on a book that potentially no, the yeah, Netflix the other film one of the was, same title. Yeah. 
The other one one is. Okay, yeah. There's a Netflix movie that is very, very similar to this one with the exception of it being like an old elder god It's instead of a veteran. Mm -hmm. But it's basically the same thing. A bunch of terrible things start happening to these doctors in the woods. But you said that one is based on a a book that's different. It just happens to be very similar and have the same title. Yeah, exactly. Like going in the woods, we're doctors, stuff starts happening to them. And it's more, you know, CGI. We're literalizing the trauma as opposed to it being Mm -hmm. like lines on the actors' faces like it is in the 77 rituals. I do like that ending very, very much where he climbs out and he's just on the road looking into the distance of nowhere. I think that ending is really beautifully shot and I think it's really poignant. Mm -hmm. I also like it because it kind of seems like the road was fairly near. (laughs) (laughs) Like they they were just, he just turned the other direction. Um, (laughs) He was right there. uh, And it's Um, a great reminder never to go camping. That's like the real thing. (laughs) Oh, I used to go camping all the time as a kid. Loved it. Oh, yeah. as a kid, as that's a kid, right. yeah. yeah. As an adult, <laughs> yeah. eh, I don't know about that. Your back yeah. just can't handle. Yeah, I was going to say, there's no amount of air mattresses that <laughs> support my broken spine. This was my husband's and I first argument that we genuinely had was I was trying to convince him to go camping with with me when we first started dating, and I was watching him get like more and more upset as he was grabbing the wheel, and finally he just said, "I am fancy," and that was the end of that conversation. What if he has like trauma in his life though, and he's like, "I was stalked and by a slasher." <laughs> When we were camping uh, when we were teenagers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and right, Fancy I'm was the name this. of the killer. He's like, I was Fancy! <laughs> <laughs> and that's where I'm moving God. us into the next film. It's uh, Skip Tracer coming up after the break. Hey, Cam. Yes, Becky. <laughs> so dry. I love it. So we've been doing this show for a few years now, and we have this huge back catalog behind us, and it features so many amazing guests. <laughs> Not only have I really enjoyed sharing what I've learned, but also hearing so many different perspectives and stories from our guests has been really fun and enlightening. Uh, like Jay Baruchel talking about Canadian film. He really is that passionate about it. It's not an act. Yeah, I mean, it, that's the interesting thing, too, is everybody, even if you're like, this is a massive movie that everybody's seen, everybody's going to consume it differently. And I think that that's why we like to get on like a diversity of voices, because uh, quite often... Yeah, you just don't expect what you expect. And I and I think it's been, like, very satisfying. Yeah, and I mean, then you get an episode like uh, Diabolik Magazine's incredible Kat Ellinger uh, talking about Yodorowsky's Holy Mountain. And I don't think I've heard the word uh, Beatles butthole used so intellectually <laughs> before, nor do I think I ever will again. And, of course, you can hear her and all of our other amazing guests. Can't, of course, name them all for lack of time. You guys want to get back to the show and listen to our current amazing guests. So I'm going to let you do that right now. But if you want to hear more... Of course, you can get episodes wherever you found this podcast, or you can visit hollywoodsuite.ca slash podcast. Okay, let's get back to the show. Vancouver is a tough town to live in. And when you're a loan shark used to being at the top of the food chain and staying there, it can be even tougher. Brutal, unflinching, but still understated, Zale Dolan's Skip Tracer should be a Canadian film we talk about next to movies like Hardcore Logo or Exotica, but we don't. Until now. A word of warning before we start. This movie contains domestic abuse as well as the death of a child. Justin, as I mentioned earlier, you're responsible for the new restoration streaming on Hollywood Suite right now, which is how you can see this. Uh, What first brought this classic to your attention? Well, so when I was researching Canadian cinema, because I saw a bunch of movies that I really liked and went, oh, I want to know more of these. Skip Tracer was always on the list of like, oh, these are the good ones. And I assumed that... Everyone knew it and like, you know, maybe there was a good release out there or someone was waiting on it. And eventually when I started doing kind of like, you know, stretching 
outwards with Gold Ninja Video a little bit, I reached out to its director uh, by email because he has a really fun blog. And I was like, can I release this? And he went, yep, no one's ever asked before. And I was like, sweet. Okay, let's go. <laughs> let's uh, just walk people briefly through the plot of this one. This one, ugh, would you say this one is spoilable? I don't think so. Um, no. Not really. It, it, the best way to describe it is kind of like a Paul Schrader style character study. Yeah. So like Taxi Driver or something like that. Uh, the film stars the great David Peterson as uh, Vancouver's best skip tracer. Skip tracing <laughs> being that they're repo men. They go and take stuff away from people who can't pay their bills. And he's very good at it. There's a competition of uh, being the one who just basically has the most repoing. Like, mm. uh, I, I think they call it the man of the year. Yes. And if you do yeah. it, you get a really crummy office in the corner. <laughs> and Which they take away from you the before end of the, the year, year yeah. is even up. Yeah. And so he decides, all right, I'm going to be the man of the year. He takes under his wing. Uh, a young man played by John Lazarus and they go like the first 30 minutes is interesting because it's like oh it's the thrill of the hunt like these are the things that we have to do the distractions the skills that you need to like take someone's car and then what it turns into is like the hollowness of this profession capitalism is destructive and like mm -hmm. the little choices that you could make to bring some kind of not balance but I don't know, less punishment to the world. I mean, it still feels very modern, mm -hmm. especially in the sensibilities. If you have seen the film Repo Man, this is very much the precursor to that film. They could, you could easily do a back-to-back -back double feature of these, but it, Repo Man isn't a ripoff of this or anything similar. I think it very much stands on its own as its own unique film. What do you guys think? Yeah, right. I mean, Repo Man doesn't really question the morality of being a Repo Man. It's mostly like, isn't this weird? Like all the stuff yeah. that we're doing? <laughs> and that's all the skip is about is like what is this job the jobs that we say oh we have to do and why are we doing these jobs yeah yeah, yeah. i think you're right too that it's also just like about any job yeah it's about capitalism like why why are, and if your work is harming people like mm -hmm. are you not thinking of that is your success it's interesting because it's a very kind of 80s idea almost like a very like anti-striving sort of thing mm -hmm. but uh See most yeah. most critics saw that and they thought this was, you know, exactly what we're talking about. It's a great anti-capitalist film. But Maurice Yakowar, who's usually, you know, a little more liberal leaning, uh, thought it was well made, but believed it villainized the blue collar worker just trying to do his job. He called the morality stupid. And he said, <laughs> this film requires us to sneer at the hero when he does his helpful job reasonably well and to applaud him when he defrauds his company and gives like, his clients the chance to That's a bananas review. That's like, yeah. he was just Utterly following Orders. What's wrong yeah, with that? Yeah. yeah. I also, know. did you watch a we were, were you not a film critic in the 1970s to <laughs> yeah. presume that the main character is a hero is crazy. Mm. Um, My favorite is yeah. the morality is stupid. I'm like, yes. wow, yes. okay. Listen, we all have bills to pay. We have to do things we don't like. So, you know, Skip Tracer, <laughs> he's a good man. And if people die horribly in the process yeah. because of the consequences of my actions, yeah. then, you know, it's just they deserve yeah. Who it. among us has not created a total family kill situation? Yeah. With our <laughs> Spoiler <words>. alert. Uh, <laughs> oh, horrible, horrible. Uh, I actually did not see it going that dark. I genuinely didn't. Mm. The first time I watched it, I was like, oh, no, no, he's going to find the kid and the kid's scared. Nope, nope, total family annihilation. It maybe is, maybe it the kid's scared dark. and he just uh, doesn't care. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, that's, it's... It gets brutal. Know. 
But yes. it's the fact that it takes that to like turn this guy completely around is something else. But then the question is, what does he go to do? Does he become the littlest hobo going from town to town helping people? Yeah, like, it's skip tracing happens? problems of like yeah. defeating <laughs> oh, evil skip tracers. Oh my God, that would have been a Canadian TV show. <laughs> you know what? He got into the stock market and uh, yeah, um, completely non-evil uh, <laughs> trading yeah. industry. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Yeah, he he just became evil again eventually. Uh, one thing I I wanted to get into because I think the cool thing about the tax shelter and why you see movies like this uh, is that essentially I think the tax what the tax shelter did that was good was it made so much movement in the Canadian film industry that there was a lot of independent stuff happening. People saw Canadian film as like a worthwhile investment. So w- while we're talking about these ones in 1977. Uh, you know, movies like uh, Outrageous that we talked about, but stuff like Alan Moyle's The Rubber Gun, uh, mm. T. Tagak's Metal Messiah, oh, like a lot of great. these real, yeah, weird, weird films. I even think like the NFB one, uh, J.A. Martin Photographer. Oh, that's a good one, which came out this very year well as well. Can. Yeah. yeah. So these are weirder movies that I think people are taking a chance on. Uh, and I think the NFB at all having the breadth to create fiction features uh, well, is a huge thing. They went kicking and screaming into that game. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, filmmakers had to trick them and say, uh, I yes. said I was going to make a documentary, but here's a fictional feature. And like, <laughs> yeah. Fine. Oh, we did We did do Gina, where it was no, like, fine, I'll take my textile oh, documentary love, and turn it into yeah, an exploitation. Gina, where it's like, oh, you won't let me release this documentary about a textile unionizing? <laughs> okay, uh, I made an exploitation <laughs> film. Kind of about yeah. that? Yeah, <laughs> it's I, entirely I, composed of commentary just on my ignore the textile workers mm-hmm. in Quebec. God, yeah, I love Gina. But uh, I, I just wanted to get into the the weird connection I have with this movie is that Zale Dallin and I went to the same school, the Simon Fraser Film really? Workshop. At the same time? <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm very old. My name is also a, a fake pseudonym. Uh, no, I. but it's... It is a weird school to come out of. Uh, it is a school very much meant for uh, experimental cinema, like hmm. uh, cinema. Uh, and, and at the time I went there, which was well in past its origins, I assume uh, Zale went there when it was very experimental. But it's interesting hearing him talk because, yeah, he has a lot of that verve and is inspired by like there aren't a lot of filmmakers in bc at the time he actually was rattling off movies that i'm like oh my god i gotta find these movies like uh wolf pen principle and uh oh god he had another one that was like about a like a a, a, a singing sex worker in the yukon or something and it was like oh man and all these movies they have imdb pages but nothing oh yeah but, they, they the, don't exist like they're not no, available yeah. like the wolf pen principle i remember looking it has like less Single digits of people have rated it. Yeah, it seems like there's a ver- there is a, a print somewhere in BC, but but <laughs> you the, must the answer people- the, these question three to <laughs> yeah, get the print. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you must be in Victoria mm-hmm. once a year. Uh, but the people coming out that were actually a big deal were people like David Rimmer, like experimental filmmakers, and he even cites David Rimmer as like an inspiration for some of the shooting style. And I think that that's very cool to think that somebody came out of such an experimental place and created what is, I, th- I think, a fairly f- like functional, regular uh, narrative feature film is very cool. It definitely has its experimental aspect to it, though, as they're playing with like his slow descent into madness and all that sure. kind of like that is definitely an unusual way of portraying how that happens. And like Zale came through uh, doing sound and working on a bunch of documentaries before he made Skip Tracer and he even made his way through the CBC for a while Mm -hmm. and so you can understand that like oh that shaped 
like his kind of filmmaking style as opposed to, like you said, Rimmer's more kind of out there experimental stuff. Because like yeah. Zale never really did that in his career until in the last few decades when he's been doing stuff basically on his own and trying to push that as far as he can go. Knowing that he worked with Alan King, like king of the documentary, Alan King, there's a lot of kind of the same crisis points as like a married couple. Like you have that same kind of feeling Mm. with the conflicts of relationships things. I love a married couple, which is a weird thing to say about that movie. But it's just it's such a fascinating documentary for me that I think you see different things in every time. But there's a lot of cinema verite going on in here Mm -hmm. as well with all the reactions and stuff that it very much comes out of that Alan King sort of playbook. Yeah, totally. And I I think that a lot of the amazing acting is also, I mean, you talk, you hear, uh, like he found David Peterson because he just went to like the Tamanis Theater Collective, which is a very weird theater (laughs) in Vancouver. Uh, It doesn't really exist anymore. It's what created the culture if people know that in Vancouver, but also he's to hear him talk on your commentary, Justin, it's very interesting when he's like, Oh, this guy basically couldn't act, but I found a way to direct. I love that guy who basically looks like the thing in, or Lawrence Tierney. He's got like (laughs) that vibe. And you wouldn't even know that. Like he just liked his look. He liked his style, but like he couldn't remember lines. So he had to like, I had to cut around it, but you don't even notice in the movie. No, you don't notice at all. Mm -hmm. And so that you're like, that is the kind of stuff that comes out of like a, a weirder experimental. And I know I like, I had the chance weirdly to uh, a friend of mine's mom is like a a filmmaker from BC. And we, we had an Easter dinner and there was all these old filmmakers talking about, you know, working for beachcombers and stuff in BC, but they were the most, excited about guys like this mm. and like Alan Moyle and stuff because they were kind of asking me they're like why don't you show these movies anymore and I <laughs> sadly had to break it to them they pulled out like a dusty tome of like the 1979 Canadian film guide and I was like oh my <laughs> they god they just carry it on them <laughs> yeah just I, I, it was somewhere just on a bookshelf yeah. they started quizzing me and I was and I was trying to be like well that company sold too yeah. <laughs> like I was definitely sweating but it's yeah it's very interesting just to know that there was this group of people producing like interesting stuff and and also i think like while i'm promoting the the experimental angle this is a very accessible film that anyone can sit down to and enjoy if you enjoy like something even like taxi driver it's not as extreme as that but it's in that same milieu and i think Mm. that that stylistic template is oh okay i understand what this will be like it's not exciting they're not like oh we're gonna make the be the man of the year it's like no 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 that that's not what it is and i think that skip tracer is also interesting in the sense of that like the rights issue was not an issue because it barely got distributed in canada or the united states yeah, and Zale did the right thing, which I think is just to retain all those rights and mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, there there are a handful of Canadian filmmakers. If you ever find a weird one, it's always worth checking if these guys if these guys are still alive and they manage to wrangle the rights. Quite often you can buy a DVD from them on their websites and what have you. Like the, the next film Zale did, which was kind of like a for hire job that he's very proud of, Hounds of Notre Dame, that the rights mm-hmm you can't get them really because the person who made the film passed away. He's like, I think his wife owns the rights. There's like a really fuzzy uh, VHS or probably taped off CBC version you can find on YouTube. That's pretty much it. And that's a bummer. Yeah. And we find that all the time. Uh, in Hollywood suite, unfortunately, is like, yeah, we, we will get in contact with <laughs> a lot of people involved and they just, I mean, you see that with, uh, I'm sure, fave of everyone in this chat, the wrong guy. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the one oh, where like, the they, they point you to watch the ripped version on YouTube because they are like, this is such a, a complicated rights issue. 
we are celebrities and we don't know what to do. There is a Kino version that came out on Blu-ray. And it's really funny because the commentary is them being like, hey, we thought this was going to be a success, but it wasn't. Ah, uh, well. <laughs> Which I feel is and like the theme yeah. of yeah. most Canadian filmmakers yes. when they make stuff. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so much so like self-effacing. I loved because I, I guess you. I also d- have not heard many commentary tracks, which you do on your your Blu-ray of Skip mm-hmm. Tracer, and it is very interesting. Where it's like, be proud of your movie, damn it! Like, <laughs> we love this. I don't know. Well, like for Zale, uh, I do an interview with him on the Blu-ray, and it's interesting discussing his career because like there's Skip Tracer, which like gets some attention in New York, it gets some really good write-ups. And then it's just him struggling for the rest of his yeah. life of like, he's making yeah. television. But even then he talks about how like he wasn't comfortable. He did all the big Canadian shows. Like he did Beachcombers, mm. he did Friday the 13th. Uh, he even worked on the CBC show talking about things that are not available. The For the Record show that was made in the 80s oh, where yeah. every big director work on them and they are completely unavailable. Yeah. <laughs> like that is bananas. And yeah, that's the sad part of most Canadian uh, filmmakers' careers that like, if you go work in television, you spend most of the time there. Like when people bring up that first movie you made, most of them have not reached that point of being like, I am proud of that movie. They're like, no, what about mm-hmm. the new stuff that I did? And you're like, eh, it's yeah. television though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, I, I do want to point out though that uh, David Peterson was not able to attend the New York Film Festival release <laughs> despite his rave reviews because he was touring a theater show across Saskatchewan in a quote-unquote gypsy caravan <laughs> pulled by Clydesdales and wow. performing in a coyote costume with exaggerated genitalia. So yeah. that's the kind of uh, actors we're dealing but with. But I, I like that I, when Zales like, uh, yeah, he could have been big. It's like, I think that a guy like that probably wants to be doing that. Exactly. Something tells that guy would have uh, flamed out. Yeah, I mean, uh, that actor, he he had a pretty good career. Like, he worked a lot, mm. but he was like a supporting guy. I hope he wasn't yeah. like, well, I can't make this premiere of the film that I star in, but I'll get the yeah. next one. You're like, yeah. oh, boy, Dale. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, I, he did have a very very big impact in a small pond as that, that theater company was huge in mm-hmm. Vancouver uh, for experimental theater. But again, it's like for experimental theater yeah. in a specific Canadian town. Hey, if it's satisfying um, and you can somehow pay the bills with it, then you're winning. Yeah. That's all you need. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Experimental theater actually did really well in Vancouver in the 70s and 80s. Transitioning into the 90s when all the condos started going up, mm. that's when it kind of I mean, fell apart. But I kind of want to talk about That's also like a great, uh, from like a Vancouver perspective, uh, the very cool thing about this movie too is you're seeing this very interesting transition in Vancouver. Vancouver is like a city that has essentially torn itself down and rebuilt itself like three or four times. Better than ever, and, right? Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> right? Definitely the one you're seeing being built has not been torn down and rebuilt at this one but it's like yeah you're kind of seeing the pre-expo mm-hmm. uh change in vancouver mm-hmm. where they're like shifting downtown and everything is a muddy construction yeah that's the thing site. about skip Tra- everything is like in repair like they visit yes. construction sites so many times in this movie and most of the people he's dealing with are construction workers or you're on the kind of like or these suburban houses where people can't pay the bills mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, yeah one of my favorite things that I heard in an interview with Zale, what he was saying that um, he wished he had done more research and heard more stories before he yeah. wrote the screenplay. Because when he was talking to uh, all these repo guys, wanted to come talk to him afterwards, being like, oh man, this happened to me. And just telling them these wild stories. He's like, oh, I wish I'd heard all these stories before I made this movie. This movie I, I think one of his favorites, like someone dropped like encyclopedias from a window on oh, the yeah. skip tracer. Yeah. They threw it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's also the interesting thing is like, this is also like, 
this movie, as as much as I'm always like, I sell it as Taxi Driver too. It's like it's kind of what it seems like. It's also kind of like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, yeah, yes. before that yeah. as well. And it's yeah, it's, but it's interesting to hear Zale that he just was like, "What's an exciting profession?" Yeah, <laughs> that was mostly his impetus to make the movie. Was like, I just need something like a little bit more exciting. And yeah. yeah, he said built-in conflict like a police officer, mm-hmm. which he's right. Yeah. He just wanted something kind of like sellable, basically, which is funny that he ended up with like a dark drama at the end of it all. Yeah. But I mean, that's very much the vibe of the 70s. This is, I believe, the last episode of the 70s season. 77, big year of downer movies. Mm -hmm. Lots of disillusionment, lots of hippie dropouts. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of falling into the exact same sentiment that everybody was feeling was that there was change in the air, but it hadn't arrived yet. And everybody was just kind of done with what had come before. And everything after 77, Canadian film-wise, we're all happy, smiling, (laughs) no downers, right? Up, up, up. Yeah. Yeah. Christopher Plummer is having a great time in the silent part. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, Christopher Plummer is just, he's having, he had great decades until, you know, it was all over. Over, just what? Yep, a job, no problem. I'll be there. Yeah, done and done. Perfect. All right. Well, with uh, a warm Christopher Plummer thought in our hearts, I think we're going to end this episode. Cameron Maitland, thank you once again for joining us. Uh, thank you, Becky. The the movie I could not recall the name of is called Sally Field Good and Company, and it's about a uh, a wandering sex worker uses her unique talents to bring peace to a rowdy Canadian mining camp <laughs> from amazing. 1975. <laughs> if anyone can find it, please. Not to be confused with Denis Gans, uh, Gina, which also started yeah. no, a sex worker. Totally different. different. Completely yeah. different. Yeah. And then imagine yeah. we, we watched Sally Field and Company. He's like, oh, this is the same movie. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we actually that is still one of our highest rated episode is our episode of Gina. And and she, Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS, oh, those two movies yeah. I know together. that people are clicking because they know one of those movies, but yeah. I'm glad yeah, they can discover exactly. the other. Yeah. Uh, Justin, how can people discover more of your movies through Golden Ninja Video as well as all of your fabulous work? You can go to goldninjavideo.com. We have all the Blu-rays that we put out, which include a lot of uh, films from Canadian filmmakers. Like we just put out Honeycomb by Avalon Fast, mm, which is great the slam dance hit. And you can pick that up <laughs> on Blu-ray. We also have like uh, a filmmaker I love who doesn't get enough attention, Terry Chu. His first mm. feature, Mango Shake, is amazing. And he has another film on the Film Fest circuit right now, Open Doom Crescendo. But yeah, they're all up there, goldninjavideo.com. And you can also hear me every week on The Important Cinema Club, where me and my podcast co-host, Will Sloan, who has appeared on this podcast as well, uh, we talk about a new movie subject every week. So you can get your weekly dose of me on there. I make sure I tune in for that because I'm always going to find something new and exciting or know what to avoid. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Two things I get. <laughs> all right. And you can join us in two weeks where we are headed to 1988. And we figured we'd started out with some fun. We with a goofy, gorgeous Goldblum double feature. It's Earth Girls Are Easy and Vibes. And we're going to be joined by Lindsay Blair Goldner. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton. Senior producer is Becky Shrimpton and co-producers are Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Cameron Maitland and Justin DeClue as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.